Welcome to Movie Go Round, the film podcast that rotates between different themes every week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is New to Two. Hey, welcome to Movie Go Round. I am Nicole Davis. Brett is out this week. Uh, we did bring a guest, but first, let me introduce my co-host, David Luzader. David, how you doing? Oh, uh, you know, I'm doing well. I didn't think of a movie-related intro for myself, so I was trying to think of one real quick. Couldn't, and now I'm just rambling, but I'm happy to be here. <laughs> vamp, David, vamp! Uh, the light! <laughs> okay. And our guest this week is Corey Scott, writer, former co-host of Podcast of Terror, geek extraordinaire. He also has a real job that I know very little about, except that the people there love him. And why wouldn't they? It is my podcast boyfriend, Corey Scott. Corey, how are you doing? I, I will always take podcast boyfriend of Nicole as uh, my best intro ever. <laughs> <laughs> Corey and I, for those who don't know, Corey and I have sort of a little mutual admiration society thing going. So, very cool. <laughs> get a get a podcast, you two. Yeah, Jeez. yeah. <laughs> get a recording channel. Last time you were with us was episode sixty-five, Sucker Punch, which was yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. But here I am again, <laughs> and yet you came back. <laughs> I forgot we made someone else watch that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, before we talk about this week's movie, next week our theme is, can we just talk about where we threw a bunch of names in a hat of movies that we wanted to talk about, but that didn't fit neatly into any of the other categories? Uh, we still get a randomized element from it with the picker wheel that we use. So next week we will be watching The Fellowship of the Ring. Wow. Brett will be so happy. I've never... Is this like a little indie film? Yeah, it's that, that little New Zealand director, I think. Mm, the one okay. that looks... Uh, like Corey Scott? Kinda. <laughs> <laughs> Curlier hair. Yeah, I think I've heard of it. I was going to say New Zealand. I'm not even sure that's a real place. <laughs> well, not on any map I've seen. Oh, it's, you know, New Zealand is Australia's Canada. That's how I think of it. <laughs> wow, every, everybody from New Zealand just turned <laughs> off this podcast. <laughs> immediately i mean that in the best possible way believe me living in the united yeah, I don't states know if they understand how much americans really look up to canada yeah. so. so trust me you know we're the crass downstairs neighbor in this scenario okay but this week was a new to two uh it was going to be new to three with our guest but you know fortunately Corey hadn't seen the movie either and with brett not here that brings it back down to new to two uh, the movie is Midnight Special. Roy, his young son, and Roy's childhood friend go on the run to escape a religious cult and the U.S. government, both of which want to exploit the boy's mysterious abilities. This movie came out in 2016. It was written and directed by Jeff Nichols, who wrote and directed Take Shelter and Mud and Shotgun Stories and Loving he's also done some shorts as well. And, you know, his catalog's not very deep, but I find his movies to always be very meaningful. 
in some way or another. I still haven't seen Take Shelter. I need to see that. Yeah. Mud, I remember when Mud came out, uh, lots of people were talking about it. Like, you know, it wasn't a movie that, you know, didn't make a billion dollars at the box office, but it definitely got conversation going. Yeah, it definitely did. You know, this was, um, he got this made, he got Midnight Special made on the basis of the critical success for Mud. Hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. And he seems to be one of those director writers that works with a lot of the same cast over and over again. He always works with Michael Shannon. Uh, Michael Shannon's been in every single one of his features. Uh, Not even just his features. There's something I'm I'm just learning here called Hank the Cow Dog, (laughs) uh, which is apparently a series of children's books. But uh, Josh... Or uh, uh, Jeff Nichols, I'm not calling Josh Nichols is a a wonderful improviser who owns the local comedy theater. Uh, I do a lot of work with out here. But uh, Jeff Nichols did a podcast version of uh, Hank the Cow Dog. Hmm. And not only is Michael Shannon in it, but he also got Joel Edgerton and Matthew McConaughey, Kirsten Dunst. (laughs) So people like working with him, I guess, and uh, keep coming back around. Yeah, apparently so. Michael Shannon's his favorite. I think Kirsten Dunst theorized that Michael Shannon just sort of gets him on a fundamental level, like really Ah. understands what Jeff Nichols wants from his characters. So what I I think I read is that Nichols sought Michael Shannon out for the very first thing that he did. Um, He wrote the parts specifically with him in mind, which I I mean, you guys were talking about the Michael Shannon love just recently on the Knives Out episode, but I can't say that I knew a lot of Michael Shannon's work other than, like Nicole and I were saying, uh, Groundhog's Day, (laughs) up until Man of Steel. He plays the wrestling fan, yeah. His most famous role. (laughs) His second role. Uh, But I I didn't know much about him at all, but this guy knew about him, sought him out, and, and has just continued to work with him ever since. I remember Kevin Smith saying something along the lines of when he kept writing movies and they wanted to cast things like uh they wanted to cast david schwimmer and chasing amy and stuff and he's like well i don't want to do that i want to use these people and they said well kevin it's not like you can just go and make movies with your friends he goes why is it not like that and i feel like that's probably similar what this is is that you get to a point where if i get the opportunity to just keep making movies with the people that i enjoy being around you know and i get quality work from and this is very much high quality work because they're high quality actors then yeah why not just do that yeah, I mean, that's, that's not wrong. Speaking of Knives Out as well, we're seeing another uh, return face from Knives Out, uh, Jaden Martell, who in that movie, uh, he played Michael Shannon's son yet again, uh, <laughs> is playing Alton here. Yeah, yeah, he, he pops up over and over. He was in uh, It, playing young Bill Denborough. Oh, uh, yeah. In it. it Chapter 1 and a little bit in Chapter 2 as well you know i I know we're here to talk about this movie and i I just i know we're going to but i just want it's so interesting like that first it was so good like so everyone was talking about then that second one came out and it was just it was so mediocre that i feel like it's kind of made us forget about both of them unfortunately that's, that's really terrible because and the parts with the kids in the second one were also still really good mm-hmm. but it i agree we we had that first uh chapter playing over and over again in our house for so many months and then in anticipation of the second one finally coming out we went and saw the second one and i don't think i've ever seen the second one again it just it really did 
kind of put a bad taste in my mouth for the movie as a whole. And it's so bad because on its own, it chapter one is so it's very good. So great. It's very good. But we're not that we're not here to talk about that. No, we're not here to talk about her. But it's I'm glad you brought up Jaden Martell because I mean this movie is it's full of great acting performances. Nobody's falling down on the job here when it comes to acting. But Jaden Martell, who was working under the name Jaden Lieberher when this was shot, he's one of those preternaturally self-possessed child actors when people come and meet him like he was, he was really actually 45 he just he's just carved out this niche playing children and, you know he's knocking back a whiskey in his trailer right now there's not a lot of special features on the blu-ray which i own but what little they had they talked to him and he's just sitting there and he's like yeah you know, I was working with Kirsten Dunst, and you know, she was a child actor, so she took me aside. She worked with me a little bit, and we developed a nice relationship, and I really enjoyed working on this film with her. You know, and it's just, <laughs> like, it's just like, where did you come from? It's like, maybe he really is like an interdimensional child of some kind. Maybe. It's, you know, as long as, as long as he's more like his character from this and not like his character from Knives Out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the acting in this movie um, is good. And, I, and I'm going to say a number of things tonight that are going to be fairly critical of this film, which is not mm. to say that I did not like it. Um, I just have some some things, some thoughts. Sure. Uh, but I will say the, the acting overall is very good. Uh, lots of just really good actors in here. I will mention this is a, a show note that I had that I put in our docket, which uh, I think there's one person, great actor, totally wasted in his role, and that is uh, Adam Driver. I was very excited to see Adam Driver, but the character is just kind of nothing. Well, I have a note about that. (laughs) (laughs) Believe it or not, I have notes. Um, Jeff Nichols saw the character of Paul Sevier as an amalgamation of Richard Dreyfuss's character from Jaws and Francois Truffaut's character from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I was going Close Encounters, but I would have gone with Richard Dreyfuss in that. Right. And I really do think that Adam Driver hit that nail on the head. You know, he's curious. He works for the government, but he's curious and excited, but not a jerk about it. He's just really interested. You know, he's a nerd who's really sunk his teeth into a problem and isn't necessarily seeing all the human implications of it. At least not right away. Hmm. And so he's just pursuing it with great vigor until he actually meets the kid. And then he's like, oh, right. This is a person. (laughs) He he almost still is analytical, though, when he meets him and when he takes him away and helps him. It still feels like he's doing it in an analytical way more than an emotional way. But he does sort of see the value of this person as opposed to just solving the issue of where they're going and how to get there and everything else. Yeah. He seems to see it and go, oh, well, this is more than what I thought it was. I have to allow this to happen. Mm-hmm. But it still doesn't seem like he's he's made an emotional connection anywhere. I mean, I guess maybe that's, I don't know. I just didn't get like a ton from his character that kept me like super interested in him. Like, oh, I'm curious about what this boy is. It's like, okay, sure, fine. Like, but like, who are you? Who, like, what is, 
what is your whole deal? Like, it just felt like a character that Jeff Nichols, I feel like kind of like maybe wrote in of like, okay, at some point he's going to be captured by the government. I need him to get out of being captured by the government. How can I realistically make that happen? I just think that's kind of where this character came from. I don't know. I just like, I, I like Adam Driver so much. And I've seen Adam Driver give so many great performances. And he was just so mm-hmm. like understated here that it's like, give, give Adam Driver more. It can still be understated. It can still be <laughs> subtle, but just give him a little bit more. Yeah. Well, I still try to figure out in 2016, like just the fact that this came out before it, that was already kind of surprising to me that this goes that far back. It goes even further and, back. It just got delayed a bunch. Yeah. So was Adam Driver the Adam Driver as we know him at that point? Was he exploding out in all of these things? Was he doing things like the opening monologues of Saturday Night Live where he just basically electrifies the screen for 10 minutes because he wants to stretch because they're doing a sketch later that he doesn't really believe in. <laughs> like, is this that Adam driver? Is this Adam driver where he's just starting to kind of like grow into his own in his role on girls. And we still don't have these expectations from how great he's going to turn out to be. I think this is just before he did the shooting for the force awakens. He uh, he got the call the first day of production for this movie. He got the call that he was going to be on Force Awakens. Okay, yeah. So this was before he really exploded. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, he had done Inside Llewellyn Davis. He had done mm-hmm. Girls, which got lots of problems with girls. But you know, Adam Driver's still still pretty good in it. I, I, I mean, I think the actor was still there. You know, yeah. he's sure he's refined his chops a lot more. But I, you know, I think I, I get like, yeah, he, you're right. He's, he's a little bit more unknown at the time. So like, you're not maybe playing to his strengths. You're casting him because like, okay, this guy did a good read of the character and like, oh, he's got some credits. Okay, let's get him on screen. Like they weren't maybe playing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could definitely see you're right. Keeping time in mind. Maybe now I'm viewing it through the lens of, I know what Adam Driver can do, but still give Adam Driver more. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think about, and this is going to be funny because look who I'm talking to. I think about when our friend Amy won the first season of America's Next Top Podcast. Who even really cares about the first season, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's <laughs> hacks. They were all hacks. Um, but JF, who had been friends with her for years, was suddenly like, oh, wait, I have been completely underserving this person because my expectations of what they were capable of was nowhere near where they actually are and you can be surprised by somebody you can have Mm -hmm. adam driver is just like this guy that you cast in your movie and not realize what he's capable of because he hasn't shown those things yet true i'm sure if if it had been two years later we probably would have seen that character expanded in some ways because why wouldn't you why wouldn't you take him and utilize him more Sure, sure. No, I, I definitely I, I get what you're saying there uh, and agree with you. I just, you know, ever since Marriage Story, I just cast Adam Driver and everything is my <laughs> yeah. motto. Well, yeah, I think there are some interesting editorial choices that I don't know that Jeff Nichols would make again. You know, he's said mm. now looking back that this wasn't his best executed movie. That he thought he had some really good ideas for it, but didn't execute them maybe as well as he had hoped to. And I think I would have liked to have seen just a little bit more of the Adam Driver character, Paul Sevier, Paul Sevier's life, 
or him yes. working in the office with his coworkers and like bouncing ideas off one another. Yes. Just so we could develop a better bond with the character yeah. before he's called upon to help rescue Alton. Yes. The, the quote from Jeff Nichols is interesting as well. It's kind of like precisely my feelings on a lot of these characters is I see there's like so many interesting ideas here. Mm -hmm. um, but I think so much could have gone on more for the characters that would have drawn me a lot more into the film. So I agree with Jeff Nichols. I think uh, I'd be very interested, to, very interested to see. Like, I almost put a note in here of like this script needed another pass. Yeah. There's just some stuff you could have expanded on that I think would have added a lot to this film. Like, like what you're saying, like Paul Sevier, like seeing who he is outside of just this kind of, because this movie is so focused on the journey mm -hmm. that I think some of the, the character development falls to the wayside of the film. It's missing salt. Yeah. It, it, it's a lot of different flavors that probably could meld together really well, but there's something that is a high expectation that could unify it that isn't there. And it's the salt. It's the thing that brings everything a little bit more to life. Otherwise, there's so much potential. There is so much that you can tell. The, there's thoughts that behind why is this cult involved? Mm -hmm. Why mm -hmm. is the NSA tracking them? And, and how is all this stuff happening? And you don't really get enough of any of those things to make it make a true story. It's more just actions over a couple of days of this thing mm -hmm. that isn't well-defined. Even when it comes to completion, it's still not really well-defined. Yeah. But it makes you want it to be. Yes. And everybody's so good. You you really wish it could just elevate up that little bit of a notch because there's something that could be really fantastic out of it. Oh, yeah. This film is a diamond in the rough. One hundred percent. Right. That's why I brought it. Yeah. I love its understatedness. I love that it has this ambiguity to it. I love that it doesn't hold your hand and just trusts the audience to follow along and wait for things to unfold. And yet I'm missing a certain, you know, like you said, salt, you know, I'm missing just that little bit of extra potency to at least some of the scenes here to really suck you in thoroughly and sweep up your emotions in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 100%. Okay. Uh, is this just Little Prince? And if so, why isn't Adam Driver dancing like Bob Fosse? <laughs> Question from Corey. I, I used to watch the 1974 Little Prince so much. And, and certainly, uh, as far as Gene Wilder roles go, uh, one of my all-time favorites is him as the fox in that. But I always remember Bob Fosse as the, the snake. And at the end of the movie, the snake bites a little prince and sends him back to his planet by basically killing his human body here on on earth mm -hmm. but the whole thing of like everybody kind of like traveling around and and trying to get this kid back to what eventually becomes like getting back to his people getting back to his home it just felt very much like that little prince journey to me mm -hmm. and there were characters that were introduced that were like trying to coax him into different things wanting their stuff from him instead and that's the journey that I kind of got from it. I guess there's certainly a a Superman-esque Kal-El type of thing, which, again, if we're going back to Michael Shannon being the villain in Man of Steel, makes <laughs> makes a certain degree, too, of like, why wouldn't you have him be in that role? But he gets to be primarily the good guy in this. Yeah. But yeah, I, I just that was my thought. Is it just 
there's something in this that feels like that classic sort of story that could be there. But I also want to see Adam Driver dressed up in leather and uh, dancing. There was the one part where he where he looked at me and he's like, hey, you know, would you mind punching me in the face? Yeah. And I got the swoons. Yeah. So <laughs> I did. That, that was very, that, that interaction was very funny to me. The face. Yeah. No, no, never mind. No, it's okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Th- thanks anyway. Or asking him, you know, you got handcuffs? Well, no, I see you have handcuffs, but you know, too much. Right. Are those handcuffs? <laughs> well, obviously, obviously they are. <laughs> like yes. I, I can see. see, like, that's what I'm saying. Like, there's these little things about his character that I really, I really enjoy. Yeah. I mean, I love that moment where he, he asks if he can go. And it's almost, mm. yeah. it's almost reluctant. Like, he knows they're going to tell him no, but he can't help himself from asking because he desperately wants to see what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Or also he knows that he it's going to screw him over even harder with the people that he works for. It's like if he goes, it's going to be even harder for him to explain that he wasn't a part of things so he can continue his life after this. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm a, I would want to be there. I'm a little confused how he is like just back in his old position at the end of the movie. Because like he was talking to the kid mm-hmm. alone. And then suddenly the kid is gone. Like, that's that's a little bit suspicious. Well, I mean, he could make up any story he wanted to at that point. Yeah, they had no way of tracking him at that point. I I guess that's true. The kid's got mind powers. I couldn't help myself. I had to do what he told me to, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, there there were a couple of, like, convenient little things like that in the movie. I'm not knocking the movie for having slightly convenient things. Like, Like, the blockade... Was just some barbed wire on some like wooden poles and like come on there would be like tire spikes. There were tire spikes. Down. Were there tire spikes? That's why they were driving on a flat tire for so long. <laughs> oh, I mean, I thought that was because they rammed into two Humvees. <laughs> well, probably <laughs> then, that also. <laughs> yeah. Admittedly, I had to watch the last little bit of this movie on a small screen, so I might have missed some some details. Yeah. Speaking of details, one little detail I noticed this viewing. I think this is. Maybe the third time I've seen this. I did see it once in the theater and then a couple times since then. Is that I don't know if I've ever seen so many blue eyed people in one movie that has been made outside of Sweden. And <laughs> it's just something that caught my attention this time is that outside of Adam Driver and like one of the cult members, like the young woman who gets interviewed, who thinks that. If Alton is with them, they'll be saved, you know, on that day and in that place. Other mm-hmm. than those two, those are the only two brown-eyed people in the movie. Everybody huh. else from Sam Shepard to Michael Shannon to Joel Edgerton to Jaden Martell to Kirsten Dunst to the two cult members who are hunting them are all blue-eyed. Well, the cult, you can kind of see why a they're all blue-eyed might actually fit the theme. <laughs> uh, right. But... <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure, yeah. I don't remember seeing any darker-skinned uh, cult members somehow. Yeah, the ranch was interesting. I kind of, I mean, I understand why they kind of just fell off at some point in the movie. But I, I was like, oh, okay, I guess, I guess we're just done with the ranch now. <laughs> the ranch is just in our rear-view mirror. Yeah, we created antagonists. And and they accomplish something partway through, the, which is getting him separated from the family. But the whole point of them just sort of disappears to the wayside as well. It's like, oh, you know, you're a cult. 
you got all these people and you all had this kid who was getting all this information that shouldn't have had. But also you've got all these guns and stuff. We were watching you anyways. Mm-hmm. Right. But none of thing, nothing comes from any of that. Yeah. Because the story is so focused on the the journey of the boy. Right. Yeah. But I mean, that was something in the interviews that I watched and the one with Jeff Nichols where I find out to my disappointment <laughs> that I don't know if he didn't write the scene, but they definitely didn't shoot the scene. Jeff Nichols told Michael Shannon, Kirsten Dunst that, you know, part of the backstory is that at one point when they're living together together with the cult and Alton's powers are becoming evident, that Brother Calvin sits them both down and tells them that God has spoken to him and told him that Alton is really his son. And so they need to give Alton to him to raise. And then oh, he's not so their child anymore. I. I would have loved that because I was yeah. the whole time I was like, why? So why isn't he with the ranch anymore? Why isn't she with like, what? Like, what happened? Right. Yeah. Why do they say that she abandoned her son? Right. When in reality, she gets excommunicated. Yeah. Right. And that explains also why she cuts her hair at the end, because she had tried to stay true to that family and everything, even though she had been shunned from them. Mm-hmm. And she finally finds the strength after he's gone to his better place to find her better place without that family Mm -hmm. but it it explains why she would have been holding on to that that whole time yeah if she just left on her own she probably would have already done all those things but now this is her moment of like i'm really separating from all of this Mm -hmm. and she shows that sign of, of relief when she does it it's not just i'm doing this to hide it's i'm doing this and i'm better and more myself now because of it and that yeah that part would have made a lot more sense for those things yeah, I think I think it also would have added a fair amount of depth to both Sarah and Roy, because like really in this movie, like their character, if you ask me to describe it, is like, well, Roy is father and Sarah is mother. Like <laughs> That's essentially their roles in the film. Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, that is. Michael Shannon is there to provide the the emotional driving force of the movie. He is absolutely determined to protect his son and yet help his son achieve his purpose, whatever that might be, whatever his destiny is. He's determined to help that get fulfilled. But you don't get a lot of details out of him mm-hmm. or what his life was like, although you do know that it's it was his parents who brought him to the ranch. You know, mm-hmm. they got converted and then probably forced him to come along because they said he was in high school when that happened. Right. He didn't have much of a say in that, probably. Right. Yeah. Right. But he stayed. That's that's true. Well, I mean, you know, indoctrination. And even when you when you meet the other the first person they go to stay with. Eldon. And he's yeah. like, do you do you ever miss the ranch? And and he's like, yeah. It, it, so I, I'm not sure why that person was gone either. But there's obviously there's something about that that they feel compelled and want to go back to even though they they are for some reason not a part of it anymore right you know he's going to somebody who is helping him so he's obviously working against what the ranch is but it's this he still wants to be there right yeah i've recently picked up a new podcast well it's not a new podcast i've recently picked it up uh cult podcast the one with Paige wesley and you know, they make clear early on that it 
people don't join cults because they're stupid or they're super gullible or particularly naive necessarily. They join cults because the cults give them something they need. It fulfills mm -hmm. some need that they have inside themselves. Like a marriage to Tom Cruise. <laughs> right, right. Or, you know, like a support system, that, an emotional support system you might never have had before. Maybe they help you oh, yeah. get clean off of drugs. Maybe they help you pay your bills. Maybe they give you drugs. Right. Maybe they give you drugs. I don't know. But depending on which kind of cult you join. Yeah. I don't recommend anybody join any cults, by the way. Just quick PSA there. It's like your insurance company telling you, we can't tell you where to take your car to get it repaired. Mm. We're not telling you what cult to join. <laughs> Just know that there are cults available to you. Right. And if you're curious about finding a place where, not necessarily a cult, but a place you can just send all of your money, you can um, email me <laughs> and I will take care of that for you. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, this cult, you know, shows its true colors and that they are desperate to get this boy back. They clearly had some other mission before, but as soon as Alton arrived and began to show that he was affecting the world in some kind of not understandable, possibly supernatural, possibly divine kind of way, you know, the leader, Brother Calvin, instantly jumps on that and rebuilds the entire religion around this kid and their mm. gospels become his the things that he's been speaking in tongues which turn out to have been communications between satellites <laughs> right i will i will say for one of the the stronger points of the film like a part where i think they got the kind of emotional beat uh just right was when there are the two ranch members who are hunting um roy and, and alton Mm -hmm. and they like are getting close to having to confront Roy. And the one guy is like, you know, I'm an electrician certified in two States. You just like basically laying out like, this is not who I am, but like, you know, he's compelled to do it because it's the ranch, you know, that I wanted more of that kind of stuff in the movie. I thought that was like a nice little kind of nugget, uh, even like about the ranch. Like that just kind of added right. a little bit of depth to the film um, that I thought, like, yeah, more of whatever this is right here, like in other parts of the film. Cause, like I knew more about that guy's life sort of than I knew about like Roy or Sarah, you know, like what what, what, are yeah. they, what have they been doing since they left the ranch? I don't know. Right. And you get a sense of how canny Brother Calvin must have been to have not given him explicit instructions and not given the, the cult members explicit explanations on what's going to happen because they have different ideas of what's going to happen on this particular date that's predicted. But he's letting a bunch of them believe that like the apocalypse is coming and they'll all yeah. be saved if they're with Alton in whatever place they need to be at that predicted time. And with Alton not even knowing yet what is happening and what he's leading towards, uh, he doesn't know about the other people at this point. But it could have been that this could be like a religious ascension. If he had been able to take that family with him mm. to this other world, that's what they would have seen it as, is they would have seen it as ascending into a higher plane, uh, which very cult-like. I mean, yeah. if, if that's on the plate, I might, you know, spin the wheel and join up with that for a couple <laughs> weeks just to see. Yeah. I mean, right. who knows? Maybe I'll get to see futuristic light people. I don't know. Right. 
Could be, could be, yeah. You know, you dead giveaway that it's a conservative Christian sect by the uh, the dresses and the yeah, the pleated the fact that the women's the, like jobs the, yeah. tend to involve childcare <laughs> and all the braids. Yeah, yep. So can't cut the hair, kind of thing, because that's mm-hmm. a symbolic thing at the very end. Is Sarah cuts her braid off and changes her hair? You know, it's yeah, part has. of her separation from the cult. Finally. Yeah, and like like Corey said, you know that's that's one of the great acting moments. She gets that smile on her face of like I'm finally putting it behind me. Yeah. So everybody's kind of. I feel like everybody was told to like tamp everything down. It's like you need to show that you're feeling these intense emotions, but that they're all bottled up inside. <laughs> they have to be able to show hints of it on their face without it being explicit like sarah doesn't lose it until after alton is gone right after he travels to the other plane you see her face which is like a mother yeah you see her face completely break absolutely like a mother you keep your brave face on until the kid can't see you yeah and then you let yourself come apart for a minute Mm -hmm. and she totally does whereas you know the two i don't know if it's just that they've both been taught traditional masculine roles, but Roy and uh, Lucas, after they've been flipped over in the car, Lucas is just like, can we go back to Texas now? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's put up with a lot, that Lucas. He has. He's the rock. He's the detail-oriented guy. He's the grounding person here. Mm-hmm. So, And I give a lot of credit to Joel Edgerton for that. Yeah, I used to think of him as like just a... Actor, when I first started watching stuff he was in, because he has one of the most singularly unremarkable faces I think I've ever seen in my whole wow, life. Shots, shots fired at Joel Edgerton's <laughs> face. I'm not, it's not meant as an insult. It's just he's, you know, a lot of character actors, like some of them aren't, they're not traditionally good looking. They've got like a bigger nose or they have wrinkles or, you know, they've got like Paul Giamatti and Steve Buscemi and they don't get to do traditional romantic roles or action hero roles. They get to do these other side things. And Joel Edgerton doesn't have that kind of face, but he doesn't have a face that's like super handsome. You know, he doesn't have like Chris Hemsworth face kind of thing. No, he looks like he's the he's the underling like the direct underling to the the main villain who beats up the rock and some <laughs> where the rock takes over as the sheriff of a small town kind of thing. He right. looks like he's the next guy. Like I'm not the complete dick, but I'm pretty close <laughs> to that. Right. Wow. He's like well, or maybe even worse cuz they don't have the charm. It's like basic white man in decent shape ready to serve whatever purpose is necessary. But he's he's great in he this. He is. Yeah. He's absolutely great and he has grown on me to such an extent. And, you know, he's always underplaying. I haven't seen anything where he does anything extreme. Maybe he has in some role that I have not seen. But it seems like he's always underplaying stuff, like one or two stops than where everybody else is. But it works for him here. And it works for him in Jeff Nichols' next film after this, Loving, about the Loving versus Virginia, the couple that filed that lawsuit. And he plays Richard Loving in that movie. And he's so good. He's so good. And good 
Good on you, Joel. Same thing. He's, he gets brought in <laughs> and we don't we underestimate yes. what he's capable of at this point in time. But then we start to see it. And then you find him in that next breakout role that happens soon after. Uh, I might say that he is my favorite character in this movie, though, because he's not part of that family. He's not a believer. Mm-hmm. He's just a super loyal friend that is going through hell to do what he thinks is right for somebody that he's known, he's known for a long time and for this little boy. Right. You don't know a lot about Lucas when you first meet him in the movie. But then you find out that he's only been back in Roy's life for a short amount of time. He hardly knows Alton, and yet he's given up essentially his whole life from this moment on to service the needs of this father and son, particularly the son. And all he ever tries to do is the right thing and puts himself in danger and potential death. You know, I thought he was doomed from the start. Mm -hmm. I'm like, there's no way this guy makes it through the whole thing. And when he got shot, I was like, well, there it is. I was so excited at the choice to not kill him off. Yeah. To let him make it to the end and to have a potential future after this. I really liked his character a lot. Right. Yeah. I mean, because it's something that you rarely get to see. He's given up everything. He was a state trooper before this whole incident. And there's no way, no matter what happens, no matter what the outcome is, there is no way he's ever going to be allowed to be in law enforcement ever again. No, absolutely not. But he's also the one who makes the hard moral choices of like, you know, I just shot another cop. I have to live with that. You know, you can't just tell me that that's okay to do or the right thing to do and expect me to just think that that's fine. And he he calls and says, shots fired and cop down, everything else like that. That sense of personal responsibility, that shines in in his character. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Joel Edgerton, first of all, I'll, I'll stick up for your face there, Joel. Uh, <laughs> you get a very nice face. It is a not unattractive face. <laughs> no, he's, he's he's a good looking guy. Yeah, he you know like, I mean like you said he he doesn't play the big bombastic roles. I mean even in the stuff we've seen him in like The Gift where he's playing mm. the bad guy, which I forgot we watched The Gift. Yes, where he's playing like you know the bad guy there. Even like uh yeah he's still playing things pretty calm, close to the chest. The Green Knight, which is a great, uh, albeit very weird film and he plays a very kind of bizarre character still like playing it pretty pretty subdued there and that's just you know that's what you call a dude up for he's great in his little bit in in obi-wan kenobi coming back as uncle owen right yeah yeah it's just you know joel edgerton seems like a great guy yeah you know that was his first international exposure i think was he's in star wars 2 attack of the clones i think playing uncle owen yeah playing uncle owen a young uncle owen and he's been on the scene since then ever since and i keep forgetting until i saw that little interview clip on the blu-ray he's australian oh yeah i forget that all the time too you totally forget that He's got a perfect American accent. His American accent is very good. God, we went after Australia at the beginning of the, yeah. the show. We went after New Zealand. Now we're going after Australia. Uh, right. Your, your, men have, your men have generically handsome faces, Australia. <laughs> Deal with that. How dare you be generically handsome? It's terrible. Uh, <laughs> what a burden. <laughs> <laughs> There's something I put in our docket, and it, it applies here because this is where I had had this thought originally, which I, yep. where I said that this movie leaves uh, way too much ambiguous for way too long. And I'm not talking about Alton's powers. Um, I'm fine with that, some of that stuff being 
very vague. I wish they had talked a little bit more about what happens when he locks eye beams with you, because that is apparently like a religious experience. And I think they I think they left that a little bit too vague. I think they could have expanded on like why are people so into being eye beamed by this by him? And also like why is he a human if he's from the other dimension? Just a small question. I think they right. probably. Okay, but anyway. Yeah, like why was he born to human parents if he belongs in the other world? Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, do they happen to be on a ley line or something? I don't know. Don't they mention that? Yes. Did they? They do. Yeah, Eldon, the um, the older ex-cult member that they go to seek shelter with first, is oh. the one who is talking about how the place is clear now. You know, I've been doing the study of ley lines and these things and the intersecting. And- oh, I was, yeah, I was just kind of saying ley lines like joke, but that probably is the, and that's all okay. You can leave some of that stuff, a lot of that stuff vague, but I thought some of the relationships and character stuff, as I've kind of insinuated, was way too vague. I was like, why is Lucas helping him? Mm. Why is Lucas, like, who is Lucas? Is Lucas his brother? Is Lucas just a friend? Like, we don't find out for 45 minutes who they, like, are to each other. Right. And he's like, oh, we grew up together. And he came to me like three days ago and told me that I have to help him. It's like, OK, g- great. I'm glad that I finally have this yeah. information because we've been hanging out with you for an hour. And like, the kid I some... beamed him. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, but also like but like how did Lucas get was he ex ranch? Like, I don't mind sci fi stuff being vague, but yeah. character stuff, you need to ground that more. You need to bring us in. This movie starts in media res and then stays in media res. Like it almost needed a character that gets wrapped up in it for someone just to be like, oh, yeah, I'm Roy. This is my son uh, who was taken by the ranch. And this is Lucas, an old friend of mine. We're going to go see his mother's like not not that clear an exposition, but just, you know, you could have given us a little bit more. of Who are we all to each other? Where do we all come from? It could have used some flashbacks. Yeah. Think about if you are Lucas, though, and, and you were a kid and your best friend's family suddenly went and joined a cult mm. and your best friend suddenly gets pulled away from you into this thing and you grow up being a cop. And part of your motivation is probably going to be the fact that there are people who just take over other people's lives mm-hmm. and you see that as a wrong and you see that as something that needs to be corrected. And you go into law enforcement and you try to make changes and things and you try to do good. And then your friend you've always kind of wished would come back out of that cult that you could rescue them from that Mm -hmm. does and shows Mm -hmm. up and says, I need your help. Then yeah, you dive into it. That is such an interesting possibility of a story that is probably meant to be there. Yes. Just doesn't get stated. Well, 100%. Yeah. And I, once I found out, I'm like, okay, cool. Now I know who Lucas is. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They just, they could have keyed in some of that stuff a little bit earlier in, in my opinion. No, definitely. Definitely. This is a movie that cries for some flashback exposition. Yeah. Yeah. Usually I don't love that, but it just give us a little. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Even like a 30 second scene of Brother Calvin sitting him down and saying, you know, Alden's going to come live with me now. And Sarah protesting that and getting chucked out of the cult or seeing the day that Roy got hauled off by his parents to go live with the cult and maybe Lucas going back inside and telling his parents what happened. And Lucas staring at a coffee cup as he's reflecting on Roy showing up at his front door the other sure. day. You know, yeah. Just something, yeah. Something like that. Any of that would have been good. And the guy who, who does lock eyes with Alton and has that moment when Roy comes in and says, you know, what the hell do you think you're doing? And he's like, well, I had to do it again. I had to see again. He says, 
I had to see again. So give us that idea as to what it was that drew him to need to that again. What is he seeing? What's happening? What does it accomplish for him? Yeah, mm-hmm. that made me super uncomfortable. But I think it's supposed to because it's an adult doing something to a child without their consent. Yeah. And it's very clear that it has caused Alton a lot of distress. Mm-hmm. Which is probably what's happened in that entire cult all this time is that that's probably been i don't think he's the only one who's experienced that and probably not the only one who feels the need to keep experiencing it and that's part of the power of of why they need him back mm-hmm. yeah so maybe it's addictive but yeah this this all points to something that you put in our docket david you know there are some real spots to tighten up the editing oh yeah, yeah places to throw in new things and places to maybe pull back some others there, there, I mean, there's just a couple of shots that also go on for too long. Like the part when they're in the helicopter flying down to where uh, Alton crashed the satellite, which we haven't even talked about. That's insane. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, but like, the, I'm sorry. <laughs> right, sorry, I haven't brought that up yet. Uh, <laughs> there's just like, but they, they, it cuts like, they just, that scene lingers on too long. When Alton's going to go with the light people, there's like too many, just like one too many cutbacks between him and Sarah before he right. decides. Like, there's just a couple of spots where it's like, there's probably a, a, a few, not a, not a ton, but a few <laughs> minutes that could be like cut out of this movie yeah. just by tightening it up. But yeah, he crashes a satellite. Or one shot of all the light beings up against the railing, like waving hi, you know, kind of. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's the impression that I get. Like the ending of Harry and the Hendersons. Yeah. <laughs> right. So. <laughs> Harry and the Hendersons. That would have been good. But I mean, I definitely do want to talk about that that scene. That's it's my favorite scene in the movie. It's pretty good. It's pretty cool. And it in the theater, it definitely hit really hard with that sound, the score at that moment and the lead up. You know, you can see they show Alton in the van, like looking up at the roof of the van and you just see a shot of the interior of the roof of the van. You know, you see like the support strut and it's tracking over and, you know, Without them having to show you, you know that Alton's tracking something up beyond that, up in the sky, that's overhead. And his father comes out and he says, I'm sorry. She's like, what, for talking to, you know, because some woman comes over and is talking to him because he's a little boy by himself over in a gas station parking lot. Uh And his father comes to get him and he says, I'm sorry. And he's like, no, no, it's okay. I shouldn't have left you. He's like, no, no, dad. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry. And, <laughs> and then, then the camera tilts boom. upward to the sky and you see flaming pieces of wreckage starting to come down. Mm-hmm. And that was just. <laughs> it's very cool. It's yeah. a beautiful shot. It's a beautiful shot. I'm sorry. It's okay. I shouldn't have left you. Oh. Sorry. Boy. 
I do like that he that they thought of like, okay, well, obviously this is going to be on the news. Like, I like that cutaway yeah. of like, it's on in the background, but it's like, oh, a, a weather satellite crashed and the mm-hmm. Canadian company. Because <laughs> it's not, this is not an American government satellite, guys. No, no. <laughs> in no way, shape or form is this a government or military satellite of any kind that came mm-hmm. down in a populated area. Did that lady in the... <laughs> Like the Quickie Mart die? Because it looked like one of those pieces of flaming wreckage came straight down on the convenience store bit of the gas station. Unclear. <laughs> yeah. For the amount of people that could have died in this, right. that we didn't see their deaths, I, I'm choosing to go PG instead of uh, PG-13 or R on, on the death total. <laughs> yeah, he's very careful not to show any clearly dead bodies. You know, you yeah. never see, you don't see what happens to Eldon after the cult members come to question him. You don't see what happens to Sarah's mother after the cult members come to question her right. with duct tape and a gun. And you don't yeah. see what happens to the cop that gets shot. You know, he's at least wounded, but you also know that help got summoned immediately. Well, he also had a vest on, I think. Isn't that it? Didn't Roy say something about unclear? <laughs> they okay. argue about it. Right. Yeah. The, the, the IMDb trivia does say like body count is zero because <laughs> you see no bodies on screen, basically. Right. Is it though? <laughs> I'm not sure it's entirely zero there, film. Yeah. But you don't want to lay these deaths at the feet of, like, this eight-year-old kid. Right, right. Yeah. That's probably pretty smart. <laughs> they also don't show the scene where the NSA throws a party and they use the Kool-Aid packets from the cult area. And, oops. <laughs> you know, just... Now, now. Yeah, that's a, that's a myth. It was Flavor-Aid, not Kool-Aid. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like the Hydrox to Oreos. Yes. It's, it's a different thing entirely. <laughs> Canadian satellite. Yes, Canadian satellite. Canadian satellite. <laughs> I want a satellite, Mom. We already have a satellite at home. It's Canadian satellite. <laughs> you, so. you wouldn't know my satellite. It's, it's, it's up in Canada. <laughs> it's a really nice satellite. Really, you wouldn't have met yeah. it. I met it at summer camp, you know. <laughs> <laughs> at space camp. Right. At cult camp. Yeah, yeah so this... Uh, where do we want to go with this? There's like three wrap-up topics here, and I'm trying to pick which order to go in. Did anybody else like the musical score as much as I do? <laughs> I didn't pay as close attention to it, so I uh, I can't say. I, but but that, that's good. That means it serves its purpose. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. It, it was not distracting. If it was distracting, <laughs> you know, if it was just like weird heavy it's bass good. lines. Yeah, yeah, it is fairly minimalist. You know, it's very low-key. most intense piece of music in the movie is that scene where the satellite bits are falling out of the sky. Um, and even then it's not that bombastic, but it this, it just hits. I am a sucker for a score that's ambient, but still emotional and still 
interesting and reminds me of the most powerful moments in a movie. So, like, I'm a sucker for this. I'm a sucker for Clint Mansell. I'm a sucker for Cliff Martinez. And, you know, things like the um, the George Clooney version of Solaris has this beautiful laid-back soundtrack. So, you know, the score for The Fountain, the score for, you know, the, the well, The Fountain one's a little more bombastic, but mm-hmm. I don't, just me. Okay, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> it was, that was good. Yeah, I just, I just, I would have to listen to it or go back and, you know, watch it yeah. again, yeah. really pay attention. Our first time watching it, we're probably going to need a, a couple more times with it to, to really pull that out. Yeah, of it. the composer here is David Wingo, just so people know who to look for. So the last couple of topics here, let's go with this movie bombed at the box office, despite good reviews. It got 80% positive reviews, was made for $18 million, and it brought in about half of that in the box office. What went wrong? I don't think it described itself as to what it was. Mm. And, and now having watched it, I don't know that it could have. Yeah, it, It's one of those things where I remember the the commercials for it, but I didn't have any clarity as to what, what the movie was at that point in time. It could have been like the polar opposite of, of Brightburn and maybe pitched that way. Right. But it was just, here's this movie with Michael Shannon and a kid that is obviously special in some way, but we don't know how I had this movie saved on my Comcast DVR from HBO for probably a year or two until we got rid of Comcast. Mm. <laughs> I just kept holding back on watching it because it didn't give me that information I needed to say, this is what I want to watch right now. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's a little bit maybe too ambiguous in not just the ways that I talked about, but I, maybe I saw some reviews saying like it doesn't really address questions as much as like audiences would like. Um, and I think that definitely does turn some people off. Like I remember when Cloverfield came out um, and you know, whatever your feelings on Cloverfield are, like I remember a lot of people being like, well, why didn't they just explain what the monster is? And it's like, well, cause you don't, it's just a monster. It's just something destroying right. the city. Like <laughs> you don't need to know that, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's like, I don't, I don't need somebody to explain like, and here's exactly where it came from. It's like, cool. It's destroying the city. Great. I think for general audiences, and this is, this is not me being like, general audiences are real dumb. Uh, it's just some people just don't like not having all the answers. And I think that's probably like maybe a majority of people like things being left of like the kid has powers. What can he do? A myriad of things like what? Uh, lights <laughs> and can yeah. tap into like radio signal and stuff. And like for some people, it's like, OK, cool. That's great. What's the story? Like, let me just dig into it. Some people are going to just get really caught up on well, what exactly can he do? Why can't he do it? And, you know, that's going to turn into maybe like not super strong word of mouth. Yeah, you're going to you're going to say to somebody today, you're going to say this isn't a kid who's Thor. This is a kid who's one of the Eternals. Right. Right. More ambiguous power. Peers of five dimensional being trapped in a four dimensional kid's body. And it's making him have these weird seizures and 
bursts of energy and it's making him feel sick. And yeah. what's going to happen? People want to catch him. And his dad doesn't mm-hmm. want them to get him. So... Yeah. And I, and I think on top of like the stuff we've talked about where some of that emotional stuff is not as strong as it could be, you know, it just, it's a, it is a movie that I, I kind of wish Jeff Nichols could get a second pass. I would love to see yeah. a, a second version of this film, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We talk about the things that we like. We like the performances. We, we like the characters as they're being played, but the story is the thing that is there's just not enough of it to be able to say, well, this is kind of a plot thing. Or you can't even say, well, you watch it and it will reveal itself to you. You'll The mystery will will come to the, the forefront. There's not really a mystery. It's just mm-hmm. it's events over a couple of days that happen. I like watching it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I can't give you a summation as to what's good about it other than really good people. You know, well written <laughs> right. in the sense of. Like everybody was enjoyable to watch up on the screen doing what they were supposed to do. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are people I would a hundred percent recommend this movie to. There's also a number of people that I would not recommend this movie to, you know, cause I just know yeah. like it's not going to be their, their style. Right. Yeah. I found it really compelling, but it's, I'm not going to say that this could not have been better. This definitely could have been executed better, maybe with a little bit more budget, maybe with a six, seven minutes more runtime. Just to flesh out a couple things. Maybe a six issue miniseries prequel from Dark Horse or something <laughs> like that. You know, I mean, it, even like, this this totally could be like a miniseries on like a, a streaming service or like mm-hmm. HBO or something now, because that would give you more of that room. That's true. You could go all you could have a whole episode about, you know, Roy's family coming to the cult and then yeah. Roy meeting Sarah and their family life together. Things like that. Why Midnight Special? Why is it called that? Yeah, I mean, other than they play that song, that version of the song uh, at the end of the movie. Because... Why that? Because Midnight Special is... It's a train that if the light comes on you, it brings you salvation. So, like, he is the light that is shining upon you and bringing you salvation. <sighs> wow. Oh, no, see? I didn't... Make That's reasonable. <laughs> I would have just been like, he's special and they travel only at night? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Let the midnight special light a, shine a light yeah. on me. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But, again, wouldn't have thought of it from, from watching the movie, but, yeah, that makes total sense. You know, this reminded me of another mid-budget science fiction movie that I I felt really drawn into, but nobody else liked, uh, <laughs> called Captive State, which we've done on the show oh, yeah. about the what life is like in Chicago post-successful alien invasion. And that one was, I think, like $40 million, but that was only made a, a few years ago. And I just... I really like it when people can make science fiction work without having to have a ton of visual effects on screen. Sure. Absolutely. You know, you make it work by implication rather than explicit what it's showing you. Although captive state did have some really nice effects in it. It was mostly driven by the story and the tale of, you know, like this underground movement uh, that's building in the city and this is about, you know, the family trying to a family trying to stay together and yet bring their child to 
fulfill whatever it is that he is. Mm-hmm. So, and I mean, you you could see this as a allegory for whenever your child is not like you. Mm. You know, if your child has interests that are wildly divergent from yours, you know, like if your kid does not want to go to college and like desperately wants to pursue being a painter or something, or your child is LGBTQ or it's having the strength to let your child be who they are. You know, they never tell Elton not, you know, try not doing what he does. <laughs> they never tell him to they accept act him more normal. Wanting to leave. Yeah, they just yeah. completely accept him for how he is. Not only accept him, I mean, they go the full force of making it happen for him. Right. Like, mm-hmm. my 10-year-old son is like, I found this other race of people that I need to go be with. And, okay, now I'm doing everything in my power to help my son get there. Right. You know, to give him up to, to something that I have no understanding of and know I'll never see him again. But that, as a parent, that's my job. Right. You know, that is what this is about. But, I mean, that's got to be three times as hard when the kid is eight. <laughs> Even though right. he is not your average eight-year-old. Uh, by a long shot, and he's clearly, you know, very intelligent and very capable and has these abilities that help him get out of bad situations, you're still, of course, you're going to worry about him, you know? That's what his father says. He says, I like worrying about you. I'm (laughs) always going to worry about you. And I mean, that's absolutely a truth as a parent is that, yes, it takes a large amount of emotional resources to parent a kid, but you wouldn't you wouldn't give it up for anything. <sighs> I suppose I should say there are always exceptions. There are people who should not have been parents, but who are <laughs> and don't understand that kids are people. <laughs> <sighs> but you like worrying about them. But you see the counter argument with uh, with Lucas saying we have to protect him. You know, he's he's dying. We have to get him to the hospital. Right. Lucas is trying to do what he believes is the right thing. Yes. For Alton. And, and in every way, he's not being a bad person. No. But it, it's not correct. Mm-hmm. And by not listening to what Alton's telling him, by not listening to what Ray's telling him, he's going against them. But in every sense of the way, he's trying to do it because he loves them and because he's trying to protect them, Mm -hmm. which is another thing that a parent could do. You can fail as a parent by trying to do your very best to do right by your children. Oh, absolutely. Or or by whoever you're raising. And it's not a failure in every single sense, but it can still be like that was the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. as hard as you as you tried and as much as you love me. You just needed to have faith in me. This is a this is a picture about faith. Yes. You know, some yeah. people have misguided faith in the cult. Some people have misguided faith in the government mm. and the things that they believe need to happen. And then there are the two parents who believe in their son. Right. And and put everything that he needs above anything for themselves. Right. This yeah. movie was inspired by an incident that happened with Jeff Nichols's child uh said when his son was you know about a year old he got sick and he had a a febrile seizure which is a seizure that you have because your fever gets too high and it sort of makes your brain short circuit for a minute and that helplessness that you feel Mm. when 
something painful or difficult or dangerous is happening to your child and there is zero you can do about it. And it's the most helpless feeling on earth and it's awful. And they're partly going through that in that, you know, Alton's getting sick and they're not sure why. They're just trying to have faith that when they get wherever they're going, that he will be better somehow, you know. And the other part is just, yeah, like you said, having faith that Alton knows what he's doing because he keeps telling them to go on. You know, he doesn't want to go see a doctor. He doesn't want to go off course. He wants them to keep going where they're going. And there was a a nice quote from Jeff Nichols on the in the interview. He says, I think our kids are going to be who they're going to be. And you have to understand that. And you have to have faith in the idea that they're going to be okay as long as you support who they are. Mm. So you support your child as as they are, and that will help them be who they yeah. want to be and help them be a stronger person and help them be a feel like they're well supported and be emotionally healthier. Absolutely. Yeah. So and that's and that's it. And we're at a good stopping <laughs> point. <laughs> Does anybody have any other last things they want to bring up about Midnight Special? No. You know, I'll just reiterate Diamond in the Rough. Um this mm. is a movie the potential is all there and the acting certainly carries this film. Could be better with some tweaks but i would not i would not call it a bad movie i would not yeah not writing it off not saying it's not worth your time it definitely is but just know what kind of film it is it might help might help your enjoyment of it as opposed to coming into it thinking it's one thing and then finding out that it's something completely different right this can get emotionally intense but it is overall a kind of low-key movie (laughs) Mm -hmm. so just know to expect that going in and i think you'll enjoy it okay well Corey, do you have anything you want to plug encourage people to go see encourage people to go read you were kind enough to say that i was a writer at the beginning of the show and uh i i did recently put out a project because of a very good mutual friend of ours uh phil rude if you yeah. go to philrude.com <laughs> you can find the story that i wrote and he was uh very kind and incredibly gifted at uh, illustrating called uh, Nick to Tate. And then you can also see a bunch of other stuff that Phil has worked on or is working on. I think he's an amazing creator in a lot of different senses. So if you want to check out the thing that I did with him, great. If you want to check out his other stuff, even better. <laughs> okay. David, what are you up to? Davluz, D-A-V-L-U-Z, Twitter and Instagram. You can find me there. If you're in the Denver area, I do a ton of improv. I never really talk about it on here, but follow me on social media to uh, find out when I'm going to be doing it because I'm doing a lot of it right now. Because guys, just so you know, David is funny. You might not know this. Uh, yeah, I, Occasionally. <laughs> occasionally. So, and I take care of our Facebook page at facebook.com slash movie go around podcast. Brett is at, I am Brett Stewart on Twitter, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to throw out at least one link for him. And that is it for this episode of movie go around. Come back next episode where we will be talking about the fellowship of the ring. Mm-hmm.